coverage. This is the PFT PM podcast. And now your host, Mike Florio. August 6th edition of the PFT PM podcast. It's a Monday afternoon on the heels of Hall of Fame enshrinement weekend. And one of the stars of the Hall of Fame enshrinement weekend. We aren't worthy to have her on this piddly little afternoon podcast that I don't know how many people listen to, but I do know this. She won the Dick McCann Award. She made us all proud at ProFootballTalk.com. An excellent speech. Proving that you can deliver a speech that checks all the boxes, says everything that needs to be said in far less than 33 minutes, Ray Lewis. Shereen Williams did it in three minutes, and she nailed it, and she joins me now. Shereen, congratulations, and welcome back to the program. Well, thanks, Mike, and I appreciate you guys being there. On uh, Larry Mazza was there on Thursday night, and you and, and your lovely wife, Jill, on Friday night, and it meant a lot that uh, PFT was represented at both things. And let me tell you, the Friday night event was great. Beyond the fact that I was very proud to have you win the award, to have the PFT name under your name on that plaque outside of the Hall of Busts is something that... You know, I never realized how cool I would think it is until I saw the picture that you sent me on Friday and, like, hit me. It's like, man, holy crap. I mean, this is pretty good. But the moment when they bring out all the Hall of Famers, I'd never attended that thing before. And I said earlier today, it was like going to a high school graduation where you know every student that is coming out. So it's not just so tedious while you're sitting there name after name after name. And I didn't know they did that, and I just thought it was great. And uh, that, that was just more like an unexpected, very, very neat surprise to have them all come out one after another. Yeah, and I've told people that's like my favorite event of the weekend. I think it's even better than the induction ceremony on Saturday because they form a gauntlet for people who haven't been there. They form a gauntlet, and they're kind of up on a stage at the end, and they walk through that gauntlet to get to the stage to get their gold jacket. And it's, just, it's a really cool experience. It's kind of their initiative their initiation into the club so to speak they also have the Ray Nitschke luncheon earlier on that Friday but I think that's really when it starts to hit them when they get that gold jacket and they see those other Hall of Famers the way they react to them kind of joining their exclusive club it's just a really neat deal and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on this report that we've had at PFT today regarding the possibility of a commitment being sought from potential enshrinees before they become officially part of the club. But could you imagine somebody there against their will going through that gauntlet, like throwing elbows? I mean, I mean, that would make for compelling TV. But I just really don't think they should want someone there who doesn't want to be there because one of those events could get very awkward if you just had someone there who absolutely positively did not want to be part of it. Yeah, no question. And, and I think most of them, as we've seen, want to be part of it. In fact, there's only been one in history of those living Hall of Famers who has not wanted to be a part of it, and that's Terrell Owens. So I don't think we're going to see any trend here. I think this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing that we've seen. You may have one later on, but even Harry Carson, as mad as he was at the process, showed up. And and most guys have shown up, every guy has shown up except T.O., even those that were mad that they had to wait as long as they did. But, you know, then you see, like, the Jerry Kramers who – waited almost 50 years for his moment in the sun and was just thrilled to be there beyond belief. And I'm sure he questioned the process many times over uh, the the last few decades, uh, wondering if he was ever going to get in and and why he wasn't in there. And so 
I, I don't know that they necessarily need some. I understand why they're concerned about it because there is a financial thing connected to this, and they're expanding that Hall of Fame left and right, and there's going to be a water park, and there's going to be a hotel, and all this expansion that they're doing. They have to have the Hall of Famers show up. I understand that. But I don't think there's going to be many more, if any, ever TOs uh, that are involved in this thing. Guys want to go to that. They want to be in that exclusive club with their peers, and I think it helps that most of the Hall of Famers came out against T.O. Uh, in his decision not to be there. And I hope that someone on the Board of Trustees or someone in the Hall who is very influential gets it and realizes that this is just not a good idea to have some sort of advanced commitment. Just accept the fact that it's an aberration. One out of 318 guys didn't show up. It'll be another 318 guys before there's someone else who doesn't show up. And if he doesn't show up, so be it. It really didn't take away much from Saturday night. If no. anything, it would have gone four hours instead of three and a half <laughs> hours if Terrell Owens had been there. So I think we should consider ourselves lucky. Although it would have been great to have him there delivering his speech at the Hall of Fame and uh, you know, saying what he has to say, airing his grievances in front of everyone in a speech that people would have seen all of it live. That was his opportunity to show up and, and say what he had to say. And, you know, I wish he had done it. I think it, it even though it would have made it longer, I think it would have made it better. Oh, no question about it. And, you know, Michael David Smith pointed out that, you know, Swan and Stallworth, Swan spent his time talking about Stallworth to try to get him into the Hall of Fame, and it worked. People listened. They heard that, and, and it was it was very persuasive, and maybe he would have gotten in anyway. But he used his time in a wise manner uh, to try to help his teammate get in. And, and uh, you know, no, I, I would venture to guess that maybe a handful of voters saw T.O.'s speech. I didn't see it. I've seen the highlights of it, but I didn't see it. So no one's seen it. All we've kind of seen are like the highlights of it. So to think that, that it made some great impact, I just don't think it did. I think he would have made a far bigger impact if he had been up on that stage and said what he wanted to say. Hey, it's an open mic. Say what you want to say. If you want to rip the selection process and the selectors and having to wait to use whatever, feel free to do it. And I still don't know, haven't seen the highlight, really what he's mad about. He said he doesn't want others to go through what he went through. What did he go through? Is he talking about the two-year wait? I'm not exactly sure. To me, he didn't make that real clear about what others aren't supposed to go through. You only get five guys in every year. There's going to be guys that wait every year unless they decide to put 15 guys in every year, which, oh, my God, how long would that be for those guys to get up there and talk? But if you're just going to put five guys in – Guess what? There's going to be 10 guys waiting every year who don't get in, that don't get that knock on the door. Well, my interpretation has been, and he's never really articulated it this no. way, but I think that he is upset, not because it was a numbers game that he didn't win, but that there were members of the selection committee who felt compelled to say negative things about him to justify his omission. And I can remember guys like Gary Myers. I argued about with Vic Carucci. I argued about with Ira Kaufman. I had Gary Myers write an essay, essentially, that I posted at PFT. And one of the comments he made is, well, as to that heroic performance in Super Bowl 39, the Eagles got to the Super Bowl without him and they lost the Super Bowl with him, which that would piss me off, frankly, <laughs> if, if, I was, if I was the one who was under consideration for the Hall of Fame. I mean, it got so bad. I was like, why are you even considering him if you think this guy's yeah. such a such a such a turd? Why do you even care? Why why is he even on the fifteen? And and I think it was a little over the top. And when you juxtapose that with Randy Moss getting in on the first try 
and I think he's too proud, 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 prideful. I was trying to say prideful and proud at the same time. Too proudful. <laughs> I'll be like Chris Sims and invent a word. Yeah. Too proudful to uh, to admit <laughs> that. Uh, I'm not too proudful to admit I'm an idiot, but he's too proudful to admit that Randy Moss getting in on the first try was a factor. And and I look at it this way. And, Shereen, I, I want to know your thoughts on this. I look at Randy Moss and Terrell Owens as number two and three all time behind Jerry Rice. And I don't know which one's two and I don't know which one's three. But if one's a first ballot guy, the other's a first ballot guy. And I think ultimately that's the cocktail of concerns that made him say, screw it, I'm not showing up. It probably was. Uh, there's no question about that. The fact that Randy did get in on, on first thought. I wish he'd say that. You know, I, I, I wish he'd come out and articulate that. Uh, my problem never was that he didn't get in. You know, almost all receivers have to wait. We've seen that in history. We can name the ones who got in the first thought. So they all have to wait. So I really didn't have a problem with him waiting. What I had a problem with was that when you looked at that ballot, say his first year or his second year, either one, just go back and look at the ballot. And the five that were picked were fine. No problems with those. But my problem was that he didn't even make the cut from 15 to 10. And I don't think you could look at that ballot the first two years he was on it and say he wasn't one of the 10 best players on that ballot because I believe he was. And he was on my 10 both years. Would I have had him on the five? I don't know. I can't answer that. I can't go back and change history because the facts are it's hypothetical. He didn't make the 10. There was no chance to do that. But I did have a problem with him not making the cut to 10 because I do think he was one of the 10 best players on that ballot the first two years he was there. Now, you've been a voter for how long now? Uh, 2007 was my first year to vote. So I guess it's, what, 13? I sense that there's been kind of a thawing as it relates to the lack of transparency that used to exist. I mean, it used to be no voters would ever talk at all about anything that happens whatsoever. There was a hard firewall there. I feel like there's a greater sense of transparency. Should there just be full transparency where people can talk about this ahead of time, after, live tweet during the selection process, televise the thing? I mean, should it be secretive in your view, or should there be a greater sense that here's what's happening and we're going to put it out there for everyone to see? It's a tricky question, and, and I think there needs to be more transparency. I think we should be allowed to say who our final five was, who we voted to, to 10, all those sorts of things, and talk more about the way we feel about players. For instance, if I had a problem with T.O., which, again, I had him on my chin the first two years, but if I did and I wanted to come out and say those reasons, it should be okay to say that. It should be okay to say what I said in the meeting. Now, I should not be allowed to say what anyone else said in the meeting because the problems you get into there is then everybody is going to be reluctant to speak up in those meetings, and, and they're going to be very short meetings, and we're not going to get real debate and real discussion because people are going to clam up about it. So, But I think that what I say and the way I feel about players and what my final ballot was or what my cut to 10 was or what my cut to 25 was, that I should be able to say that. And, and as it stands right now, we're not allowed to say that. But I should be allowed to say the way I feel and who I voted for. I shouldn't be able to discuss anybody else or the way they feel. But the way I feel and the way I voted should be able – I should be able to discuss that and, and be transparent about that. And I would have no problem with that. I, I would tell you who's on my ballot every single year. No problem with it. And when guys get to the Final Five, I, I think they're all Hall of Famers when they get to the Final Five. I don't think I've ever voted no on anybody once they've gotten to the Final Five. I think it's very unfair to them when they get to the Final Five. They're Hall of Famers, and, and I think they should be in when they get to that point. And, again, we leave people out every single year. With only five on there, 
you've left people out who deserve to go in and they just have to wait and get in the queue and, and wait their turn and ho- hope it, you know, we hope it's next year. And we're about to come up on the contributors category. And a, a guy like Pat Bowen has waited forever to try to get into the hall of fame. And here he is again, uh, up to be the contributor candidate. Uh, and we know he's probably running out of time with his Alzheimer's uh, to get in there while he's alive. So, um, you know, you hope these guys get to enjoy it, and that that doesn't play a part. It's not a consideration, but you hope that they're not Ken Stabler and it happens after they're gone. You covered the Cowboys during Terrell Owens' stint with the team. Give me one thing that happened during his time there that would cause you to say this is something that would undermine his Hall of Fame candidacy. I don't really think there was anything in there. I, you know, he wasn't great in the playoffs for them. They had the, the great season. They had the home field advantage, and they got in against the Giants and lost in the playoffs in the first round at home. And I would say he didn't play a big part in that, which probably led to part of their demise. But Patrick Creighton dropped the pass that probably would have won the football game. It wasn't Terrell Owens that dropped that pass. It was actually Patrick Creighton, and they go on to win that game and probably get to the Super Bowl, maybe win the Super Bowl. And so the Giants getting there. That would be my one thing to say he didn't do anything to help him in the playoffs to kind of lift them up, uh, which we know great players, great receivers uh, tend to do. But other than that, no, I, there's nothing that happened in Dallas. We, we all know that uh, he accused uh, Romo and wouldn't have drawn up plays, but that to me doesn't affect his candidacy for the Hall of Fame. That game against the Giants when they lost in the divisional round 2007, of course, the Giants were on their way to beating the Patriots in Super Bowl 42. That game had afterward the Terrell Owens press conference where he's got the sunglasses on and he's choking back tears. And I thought taking passive-aggressive shots at Tony Romo for going to Mexico during the bye week, that's my teammate, that's my quarterback. I assume you were in the room while that was going on. What what yeah. was what was your reaction as this was unfolding? Where this you know six foot three chiseled athletes <laughs> up there crying about possible criticism of his quarterback? Yeah, I thought it was a little over dramatic. Uh, the, the way that went down, uh, pretty humorous, I thought. Um, but you know, I. I I don't know. I don't know how much of an acting job it was. I don't know how much real it was. I think that was, was his way and, of throwing him under the bus. Right. I think he was just it, trying to throw him under the bus and look like he wasn't. Absolutely. It, it very well may have been some passive aggressive in there. And, uh, you know, I know he didn't always get along with Tony Romo. He didn't always get along with Jason Witten. We know that. It's documented. Uh, but I tell you what, you know, I, I've talked to Jason Witten and Tony Romo about him, and they'll both tell you they thought he was a Hall of Fame receiver. And so they, they don't hold anything against him uh, when, it, when it comes to the Hall of Fame. They still believe, despite some of those things that happened in Dallas, that he is, was and is a Hall of Fame receiver. What was it for you as a child? that got you as interested in football as you became? Well, it was really my mamma, my, my maternal grandmother who lived in Hillsboro, which is roughly an hour from Dallas. And she was just a huge Cowboys fan and NFL fan and, and knew everything about the game. Apparently my grandfather, who I never met, knew a lot about the game and had really uh, relayed it to her. And, and so she had a great knowledge of, of the game. And she got me started loving the Cowboys in an early age and, Everything. I didn't want to wear dresses to school. I wanted to wear my Cowboys outfits to school, my Roger Staubach jerseys. He was absolutely my favorite and my mama's favorite, and, and so would wear those. And so in second grade, I asked my teacher how far it went to Dallas. 
She said, well, you know, five hours, about 300 miles. Why do you want to know? And I said, well, go Mary Roger Staubach, thinking, what an absolutely <laughs> stupid question to ask me. <laughs> Don't you know this? Um, but the local newspaper came out and wrote a story. Miss Bridges called them and, and said, hey, I have this kid. There's a real big Cowboys fan. And, and so they came out and did a story on me and, and called me the Cowboys' youngest fan. I was seven. And I talked about that I really wanted to cover the Cowboys when I grew up. That's what I wanted to do. And uh, I think it was a relief to my parents because my first uh, job option was I wanted to ride on the back of the garbage truck and be garbage collector. <laughs> I thought it was really cool that they hung on the back of the truck. <laughs> yeah. um, so, I, and, and it's amazing to me to see somebody who knew at that age had that clarity, yeah. had that vision, and, and it didn't go away. Was there ever a time that you wavered, or was that your passion? Was that your determination from age seven onward? Yeah, I think it was my passion and determination. Brief, very brief, briefly, I thought about maybe becoming a lawyer, kind of following in your footsteps. No, or, God, thank uh, going God you didn't clerk, do that. Some, <laughs> some sort of clergy. Uh, but it was really number one the whole entire time. That's That's what I always wanted to do. And you know, work for the high school paper and work for the uh, the paper at Texas A&M, the battalion, and, and really, you know, had that mindset that that's the way I was going. Now, I probably thought early on that it was going to be more in broadcast, and I didn't know girls didn't do that. That It's just something I wanted to do, and I said, I'm going to go do it. So we had an A-frame metal swing set, and I'd climb up on it, and I'd pull a little plastic cap off, and I wanted to hear my voice reverberate, kind of like you hear on TV, and so I'd, I'd practice you know, Roger Stallbach to Drew Pearson. I told Drew Pearson the other day, I said, I think you guys caught like, you caught like 500 touchdown uh, passes from, from Roger Stallbach in your career, at least in, in my play-by-play version of that. So, uh, but I would practice that, and, and really that's kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to go more in the, the play-by-play or being an analyst uh, on the Cowboys network, but, you know, figured out quickly that, that writing, I was much better at writing, and, and that kind of became the uh, the, the career path uh, probably in high school there's a federal judge here in the town that we live in and she's been very successful was successful as a lawyer she's been a federal judge for 25 years and she has told the story repeatedly that when she told her father she wanted to go to law school her father said you're taking a spot that needs to go to a man who has a family to support I mean, that was the mindset back in that yeah. day how did that affect you How, because you, you you know this was a very unconventional this was a yeah. male-dominated industry I, I get the impression you just never even flinched you never thought about it you just said this is what I'm going to do and let me go do it absolutely and, and that's kind of I just you know again I didn't know that this wasn't something that women didn't do it's just really always what I wanted to do now I quickly figured out this was not something that women generally do my first job I was working at, back in Bryan College Station at the Eagle and, and covering Texas A&M, and there's a football game between Arkansas and A&M that decided I'm going to date myself here, but it decided the Southwest Conference. And, uh, and so I had an assignment to write a sidebar on the Arkansas quarterback, who at that time was Quinn Groby. And so I went up to the Arkansas SID before the game was over, and I said, hey, come into your locker room to get Quinn Groby. been assigned to write a sidebar on him and he says well we don't allow women in our locker room and i said uh, uh okay uh what do i do and he said well come stand outside the locker room and after the men go in and interview do their interviews we'll bring quinn out for you who else do you need and i said well just the coach okay we'll bring him out too so i stand outside the locker room as i'm told to do and again being a young reporter i do as told and 
20 minutes turns into 30, turns into 40. And finally, Kirk Bowles from the Austin American Statesman comes out. He says, Shree, what are you still doing here? And I said, well, I'm waiting on Quinn Grovey to come out. You know, they promised they'd bring him out. And he says, there's a back exit. They're gone. And, uh, you know, I probably was as, as scared as anything, probably about to start crying, going, how am I going to get a sidebar on a guy I haven't even interviewed? And he put his arm around me, Kirk did, and said, hey, I'll take care of you. You know, the quotes were said in a group setting, and I'll give you everything I have, and he saved me. And he doesn't remember the story, but it, it was very important to me, uh, A, from the standpoint of figuring out, okay, women don't do this, you know, and you got to figure out a way to, to do it uh, to get over some of those hurdles and barriers that you're going to face. And, and B, that you've got to make friends in the business because uh, sometimes you're going to need their help. And I think I've adhered to both of those and overcame those hurdles and have made a lot of friends in the business who've helped me out over the years. And hopefully I've helped them out uh, some over the years, too. Um, and there were a couple other instances like that. And, and of course, some in the NFL and locker rooms. And, and uh, I'm very glad to say that I think those days are, are mostly gone now. We don't hear a lot of that stuff. And it's um, part of it is the, the changing culture in the locker room. Locker rooms now are like houses, you know, and the guys shower and change in the back, and they really don't change at their lockers anymore. These things are huge and impressive and all those things. So I think that's helped change, uh, change it too. And I, and I have said this for a long time too. I think way back when guys didn't want women in their locker room, now I think it's, they don't want anybody in their locker room except themselves. Uh, and so I think that's a way it's changed too. Uh, the locker room atmosphere. Give me your best or maybe your worst NFL-related story as it comes to this notion that, that this is a male-dominated industry and there was a time when they just didn't want females in the locker room or around. Yeah, you know, I think it's uh, when guys would, would walk around naked and do it on purpose and do interviews on purpose and try to get you to turn around on purpose and, and those sorts of things that happened uh, over many years, and there was really nobody told them not to do it. You know, PR didn't tell them not to do it. Nobody told them not to do it. It's just kind of the way it was, and and you were expected to just, you know, follow along and take it, so to speak, uh, with, with whatever the guys wanted to do. And so uh, I don't know that I ever had any crude comments other than, hey, turn around, you know, when they weren't dressed or, uh, you know, I remember Plaxico Burris very well after a Monday night game. He insisted on doing his interviews in the nude. So you either he'd had a big game, so you either go interview Plaxico Burris in the nude or uh, him in the nude, not me in the nude. But you go, <laughs> <laughs> you, you go, you go. I'm glad you clarified no. that. Yeah, let me make sure I clarify that. But you go interview him there, or you don't get the you don't get the quotes. I mean, it's as simple as that. And so there's some of those things happened over the years where yeah, you know, you just had to do what you had to do and and get through it and move on. And uh, I haven't interviewed a guy who's not dressed, and that might have been the last time when Plexico Burris played for the Steelers, and that was obviously years ago. But again, I don't think PR or anybody will, I don't think other reporters would allow that to happen uh, in this day and age. I do think things have changed, fortunately, uh, as, we, as we've come through the years, and guys are really used to women being in there now. I don't get the impression that any of the adversity you faced left you angry or jaded, and, and, and that's and that's a compliment. I mean, because yeah. for me, if I was dealing with the stereotypes and the lack of access and one thing after another, it, it's going to take a cumulative toll, and at one point I'm just going to tap out and I'm going to go jump on the back of that garbage truck or go to law school. <laughs> but what, what allowed you to continue to just – fight through it without it having a, a negative impact on your attitude or your psyche? 
Yeah, you know, and I talked about my speech that you were there for, that how much I love the game, and I think that came out in, in second grade when I said I want this is what I want to do, and I just think it was a passion for so long and something that I love. I truly, I, I love the game every bit as much as the 318 men who are in the Hall of Fame, and I hope that has come out in my writing over the last 25 years, and, and I hope it came out in my speech the other night, and, and I hope people see that, uh, that it is a love of the game. Uh, and just things that, that you went through to get there. Everybody's had to go through something, um, you know, and I, I don't know that, that men necessarily have to go through, well, you don't know the game because you're women, and I, I don't because you're a woman, and I don't know quite how that works because uh, if you look at most guys I think that were around in journalism, you can tell pretty quickly that they didn't play the game. Um, so how are they supposed to know the game better uh, because they're males and we're female. None of them, I don't think we have any reporters, uh, at least in, in the writing business, who uh, played in the NFL. You know, some of them played high school football and maybe a handful played college football, but most of them didn't. And so, you know, you're just like the rest of them. But you do get a lot of those comments. Again, I think they've lessened over the years. But now and again, I'll get it. You should be in the kitchen. You know, you shouldn't have a job. You you should be raising babies. You should be doing all those things, you know, the typical, stereotypical roles that women play. Uh, there still are some guys out there, and you're never going to change their mind, and it's just the way it is. Uh, and, and, again, yes, you could be angry and find something else to do, but uh, when you love it, I think, as much as I've loved it over the years, I don't think we work, Mike, and you said this before, too. I, I don't feel like I've worked a day in my life. Because it doesn't feel like a job, and it's not getting on the back of that garbage truck and being out in the heat and the stink and all those sorts of things and sweating every day. And uh, what we do is is pretty fun most of the time. You said something that I'd never really considered before. Former players with recognizable names either end up on TV or radio, or out of the business altogether. Why do you think there isn't a player, one player in all these years? who would be someone that we would know, right? A name that we remember, a guy who was a starter for seven years, a guy who was a pro bowler, whatever, who has ended up writing about the sport instead. And it's a good question because we just don't see that. We do see them on TV talking about the game, but we don't see them writing about the game for the most part. And it is different. And I don't know why. Maybe it's a more difficult task to, to be able to write a story uh, and, and tell a story in 350 words or 1,000 words or how many you have uh, rather than a soundbite, a 30-second soundbite or a minute soundbite, maybe that part's easier for them because they're used to doing it, haven't been in the locker room, and they're not used to writing. Uh, it's something I think Jason Witten could probably do. You know, we've seen a couple things he's written now. He wrote something for ESPN the other day about the dangers of social media, and uh, he's written a couple of these things. He wrote the goodbye letter to, to Tony Romo, and, and I think he's a very good writer. Now, I don't know how much help he's getting, but uh, most of us have had or do have editors uh, who look at our stuff. So maybe he had an editor, maybe he had somebody help him. Um, but, uh, you know, he's definitely one who could probably uh, do this. I don't know how he'd be on deadline, uh, but if he didn't have to write a deadline story, I, I think he's one who could probably do it. But you're right. We, we just haven't seen guys come in and, and be able to write uh, stories and, and maybe they're not good at questions either because most of them that we see aren't on the sideline. Most of them we see are up in the booth just analyzing the game. You said earlier how you became interested in football as a young child. Was there a moment in your in your early years where like the hook really got set deep? I mean, I'm, I'm a firm believer it's one moment, usually a loss more than anything else, that establishes that connection 
that becomes permanent? Was there one game, one loss, one win, one anything that made it like, hey, this is it. This is as good as a tattoo on my soul. You know, you know what it really was? It was probably I got the Tampa Bay Buccaneers beat. That was really my first beat. And I, I got to see they, at the time they were in the same division uh, with the Detroit Lions. And I got to see Barry Sanders. And I got to, at that time, we got to go down to the sidelines before the game was finished. They don't let you do that anymore. But I was actually standing in the end zone. I hadn't moved down to the sideline. And the Bucks were actually winning this particular game against the Lions. One of the few times they beat the Lions back when I was covering them. And, and Barry caught a little screen pass at the end of the game. And it was meaningless. But he weaved back and forth and twisted and turned. And, and he's coming right at me. And, and I got to see that up close and personal. I'm thinking, how do you ever tackle this guy? Like I, I, and they didn't tackle him. He went for 45 yards. And it was a touchdown. And, and, and I think that kind of, kind of sealed that, wow, that was really cool. And that was really cool to see. I think covering my first Super Bowl, even though it was a blowout, uh, the 49ers killed the Chargers that year and just saw I just saw some great games that first year. Uh, but I, I think that first year kind of sealed it for me going, okay, this is really what I love to do. I, I mean, this is just really cool to come out here every day, to go to games, to go to the Super Bowl, to see all this sort of stuff, and to see Barry Sanders uh, in his prime do what he does and, and get a close-up view of that. So I think it was really probably that first year that sealed it and said I'm on the right track. And, of course, Having grown up a Cowboys fan, probably the next year when I got to cover the Cowboys in the Super Bowl now, I wasn't working here. I was working for the Orlando Sentinel. But still, just to see, you know, the team you grew up rooting for uh, win a Super Bowl and get to write about it, I think, was, I think was pretty cool. Uh, and I'm not a fan of the Cowboys anymore. I mean, once we – I always say it's like seeing how sausage is made. Once the curtain's pulled back, you, you quit being a fan. And I'll be really interested – um, when I'm done with this, if I go back to being a fan and living and dying uh, with how they do, because I'm I'm not now. Um, I I don't care whether they win or lose or whatever. I think now it's more about rooting for players and for rooting about teams. We all have our favorite players and we root for those players uh, rather than root for teams. And I have players all across the league that I root for. Uh, they're just really good guys uh, that are fun to fun to cover and fun to write about. Now, it's easy to say that because they've stunk for the last 23 years. But if they put together <laughs> yeah. another Super Bowl run, are you going to feel that flame start to get bigger and bigger deep down inside of you? Uh, it'll be interesting. I, I don't. They haven't been there. I mean, I got here in 1999, and by that time, they were already terrible. Uh, so I haven't covered them really. You know, they've had two good years, really. Uh, when you thought they had a chance to go to the Super Bowl and, of course, lost the Giants and and then lost the Packers or when they had home field advantage throughout the playoffs. So I don't know how I feel just because it's never happened since I've been here. Um, but, but it will be interesting. And again, it'll be interesting when I'm done uh, right now. I mean, the Houston Astros are my team and Texas A&M is my team. And that's kind of the two teams I live and die with uh, now. I finally got to see obviously the Astros uh, win the world series last year and, and hope, hopefully your, your guy Jimbo Fisher can bring us a national championship at A&M one day. It's amazing when you think about it, though. The Cowboys, since 1995, their most recent Super Bowl win, have not even been back yeah. to the NFC Championship game. No. Washington, Detroit, and Dallas, yeah. the three teams in the NFC who haven't done it. It's unbelievable. And I ask Jerry all the time, did you ever believe it would be this long? And he, of course, says no. Uh, but I don't know that any of us believed it would be this long. We all thought they'd have a Super Bowl by now. They'd be back in the game. Uh, as you said, at least back in the championship game. They had two years there when they had home field advantage, 
and just couldn't take advantage of it. Uh, and I think, you know, having Romo, we, we thought they were going to get it done with him. And, of course, he had the bobbled snap with Seattle. I thought, I thought they had a chance that year um, <clears throat> with Parcells as their coach. Uh, and if Romo hadn't bobbled the snap on the field goal, you know, I, I think the Cowboys probably won that game. And I think they probably beat the Bears. I think it was the Bears they would have played next. I think they probably beat the Bears and, and, and maybe go on. But that's how close they've been a few times, a play away. We talked about the Patrick Creighton drop in the Giants game. And, of course, Rodgers did his magic against them here a couple years ago uh, when they had home field advantage, uh, when it looked like they were they had a chance to, to at least go to the championship game, if not the Super Bowl that year. So, um, they've been close, but it's just uh, it's amazing that it's been so long uh, since they've back, been back to the championship game, and yet their love around the country has not uh, ceased at all. People still still love them around the country, but we have generations now of, of kids who never have never seen the Cowboys win, never seen the, as you said, never seen the Cowboys in the championship game, and it's amazing. You talk to them, they're like, no, we've we've never known the Cowboys as winners. They have to go back and look at history to know the Cowboys as a winning team. That leads into one of the questions we've gotten from our PFTPM posse, the group that zealously supports this podcast at Leapers 500. Do you think Jerry Jones overall has been good for the Cowboys and for the league? I think he has. Uh, I've said this a million times. I think Jerry is the best owner in the National Football League. I think Jerry is the worst GM in the National Football League. And I would tell him that. Uh, I just don't – he's done better since he's listened to Will McClay. We've got Will McClay in there, and, and, he, and he's done a lot better listening to Will. So they've drafted better over the last few years. But I think his bigger contribution to the game, and I think why he's in the Hall of Fame, is not what he's done with the Cowboys. I think it's what he's done for the NFL. It's what he's done in suing the NFL and getting sponsorships and really growing the league. It's the TV contracts. They wanted to give rebates back to the NFL when Jerry came in the league. Jerry said, are you crazy? And they said, fine, here. They threw it in his lap and said, if you can get a better deal, get a better deal. And he brought Fox into the picture, and, and the game's just grown since then. I don't think the game would be where it is today, as big as it is today, uh, without Jerry Jones. The, the guy is just a visionary in, in almost everything he does. And, yes, he's made some mistakes. There's no question about that. But I, I think overall he's been very good for, for the game of football. He's made the other owners a gazillion dollars. He's made the league a gazillion dollars. He's grown the league. Um, and so I, I think he's been very good for the league. Um, has he been good for the Cowboys? He was initially because he was smart enough to hire Jimmy Johnson. But since then, they haven't done a whole lot. There's been a sense really the last seven, eight, nine years that he would rather fail in his effort to be the one who authors a championship than bring somebody else in who would be a big personality and take over like like Jimmy Johnson did, like Bill Parcells did, that, that he wants to be front and center with his finger on the button as to what got the team to the championship than to be just kind of the guy who's in the background while someone else takes over. you think there's any merit to this idea that he doesn't want to be riding in the sidecar again for a championship? He wants to be the captain of the ship. I think there's something there. Uh, however, having said that, there has been something there. I think when he's done with Jason Garrett, whether that's after – and he loves Jason Garrett. Don't get me wrong. But at some point, you know, Jason Garrett has two playoff seasons and seven full seasons as head coach. That's not good enough. So at some point, whether it's after this year, and I do think they have to make the playoffs for Jason Garrett to keep his job. But after this year or the year after this one, and he's getting on up toward 80, 
Uh, we all know he doesn't have a ton of years left. I would not be surprised when he replaces Jason Garrett if he does not go get an established football coach like a Bill Parcells. I'm not saying it's going to be Bill Parcells, but I'm saying somebody like Bill Parcells who has won a Super Bowl, who has done it, who has established, and kind of turn it over to him and say, hey, I don't have a lot of time here. I want to win another Super Bowl before I go. Give me that and kind of turn it over to them and let them go. I'm not going to be surprised at all if that, ha- if that happens uh, because it, it hasn't been done, as you said, since 1995, and he is running out of time. Uh, who knows how, many, how much longer he has, uh, but at his age in the mid-'70s, I mean, you know, father time gets us all. Uh, he's not going to have a ton of years left to get this thing done. So I think he's going to go get an established guy uh, as his next head coach and, and make it happen. How much of a distraction has this anthem issue been for the 2018 Cowboys? Because with Jerry and Stephen Jones at that front end of the of the cutting edge saying, you know, guys on our team are going to stand on the sideline, basically regardless of whatever the rule is, and you've got players who have been pulled into it, and Dak Prescott's had that get-out mural that he's had to talk about. Is it a distraction for the team at this point that the Cowboys – are on one extreme of the anthem debate where there's no question their guys are always going to be on the sideline standing. They've insisted that it's not. And, and I think with the way players have come out in support of Jerry, I would have to say it's not a, de- it's not a controversy and not a debate within their locker room. I think they do stand with Jerry in this idea. Now, whether it's Jerry actually coming out and forcing the issue, I don't know. Um, Jerry's idea is that he's taken the heat off his players that they don't he's by saying this they don't have a decision to make like he's made the decision for them so he's trying to take the heat for them i think that's his reasoning for this doesn't really come out like that but i think that's his reasoning but the players have bought into this that we're going to stand up for the national anthem and we're going to be as one and we're going to be united and they've all said it's not a distraction and tyrone crawford said the week i was there at training camp he said the distractions from this football team are gone. We're not having those anymore. We are being as one. And and I think they've done that. And, you know, Jason Garrett was asked about, does it become too much? All Everything that we've talked about, the Papa John's thing, the national anthem, you know, you keep getting all, all these questions. Uh, and the Cowboys are always asked all these questions. Jerry is always asked all these questions. Last year it was the Ezekiel Elliott uh suspension and what was going to happen and legal issues of that and was he going to get suspended and Jerry coming out and trying to stop Goodell's contract. They had all of those things. So it always seems to be something with the football team, but I do believe that they are as one uh, in accord on this anthem issue as players. They, they know they're going to stand uh, and they're fine with that. Rob G, who goes by the handle at on tour forever on Twitter, asks, can the Cowboys really compete with Des Bryant and Jason Witten no longer on the team. They have to have one of the worst receiving cores in the NFL. Yeah, and that's the problem. And that's where I kind of pause thinking about what they're going to be. I think Ezekiel is going to take up some of that slack as a receiver. Um, but they're going to have to have somebody step up. And, you know, Tony Romo has said, hey, Miles Austin wasn't Miles Austin until he got a chance. So maybe Alan Hearns is the next Miles Austin. Maybe there's one of those guys on the roster who hasn't gotten the chance, who's going to get the chance this year and is going to step up. I don't think it's going to be Terrence Williams. He's gotten his chance. He, he had a chance to start for Des Bryant the year he was injured and didn't get it done as a number one receiver. So I, I think he's a two or three receiver. So I don't think it's going to be Terrence Williams. Uh, but, I, I, you know, maybe somebody else steps up there. I do think their defense is going to be better. 
And obviously having Ezekiel Elliott for 16 games is going to make them better. Uh, but the receiving core and the offensive line is going to be better with Connor Williams in there now. But it's all going to fall on Dak Prescott in that receiving core. Are they going to be able to complete passes? And they've had trouble doing that in training camp. They've had trouble getting the ball down the field just like they have the two years that he's been the quarterback of the Cowboys, and they're continuing to have that problem in practice. Uh, and, and he's got to stop the turnovers and go back to the four interceptions that he had two years ago. I think that was probably an aberration a little bit, but uh, not have the number of interceptions that he had last season uh, for them to be successful. But they are going to have to have somebody step up, whether it's Cole Beasley or Alan Hearns or whoever. Those are probably the two most obvious candidates uh, to, to step up and, and be the big receiver when they, when they need that receiver. Jeff Swain would probably be a choice at tight end. Uh, but, yeah, that receiving core looks absolutely horrible on paper. Kevin Gilbride, who most recently was the offensive coordinator of the Giants, had been head coach of the Chargers. He'd been on PFT Live a few times last year when we were trying to figure out what Dak Prescott was going to do in his second season. And Gilbride had studied Prescott, and he was a believer that because Prescott had so much time as a rookie, because of the offensive line and the emphasis on stopping Ezekiel Elliott, he was able to just sit back there and wait for someone to be wide open and get them the football. Do you think this year, with Elliott not dealing with the distraction of the looming suspension, do you think that, that Prescott can get back to the point where he has the time, that luxury of time, to wait for someone? Because eventually, if you give a quarterback enough time, somebody's going to be yeah. open, he's going to get him the football. Do you think they can get back to that in 2018? And that's what they have to have. And not only having Ezekiel, but like I said, putting Connor Williams in, that left guard position was awful. And frankly, Lyle Collins was not good at right tackle either. And I think he's going to be better in his second season at right tackle, his third season overall. And I definitely think they'll be better at, at left guard with Connor Williams. Uh, Tyron uh, Ty uh, Ty Smith has to stay healthy at left tackle, and that's an if because he's had some back issues and some other injuries. But he's obviously one of the best left tackles in football, and they need him there. We saw what happened when he wasn't there last year, uh, and they're still not real well covered there this year. I think they will move. That's the interesting thing about the football team. They got four guys who played left tackle in college on their offensive line. So they feel like they'll probably move one of those guys to left tackle and fill in somewhere else, whether it's Connor Williams or Lyle Collins or, or Zach Martin, I think would end up playing left tackle if something does happen to Smith. But I do think that's what they're planning. You're exactly right to give Zach Prescott more time to go through his progressions and find the open guy like he did two years ago. And Elliot may be able to help in that too. Uh, just the fact that he's there for 16 games and teams are going to be keen on trying to stop him. I think Elliott's not as good as we saw his rookie year, but not as bad as we saw last year. I think he's a quarterback somewhere in the middle there. But it is a, such a key year for him and the Cowboys. The Cowboys really, really, really need him to have a huge year. So they know that they're, when they're committing all this money to him, which they can do after this season, when they're committing all this money, that it's a true commitment, that they feel good about where he is as their franchise quarterback. If he has another year like he did last year or worse, there are going to be some real questions about how much they offer him and, and how much they're going to pay him uh, to be their franchise quarterback, being unsure that he's their franchise quarterback. It's well, really a key year for both of them. They really need him to have a big year so they feel good about a commitment to him long term. And, Shereen, getting back to something you said earlier about Jason Garrett, if he doesn't get to the playoffs and Jerry Jones, who will completely and totally and unconditionally and unequivocally support a coach until the moment he no longer does, if he decides he's out on Jason Garrett and he goes and, and bends a knee for 
today's Bill Parcells, whoever that is that flows, you know, hey, Bill Cowher, sure. I'll give you $12 million a year to come coach my team. Coach shows up and says, I really don't think much of Dak Prescott. I want my own quarterback. I mean, that that's going to be a factor as well if there's a change in the coaching yeah. staff. Yeah, no question. So, again, what solves all that is if Dak Prescott plays well and his football team uh, makes it to the playoffs. Now, I don't think they're going to win the division with Philadelphia in their division, but we know things happen in a year, and, and maybe they do. But I do think they need to have a good record and have that top wild card, and, and I think they probably need to win a playoff game, uh, which is going to be difficult to do, obviously, on the road against a division winner. But I think that's what it's going to boil down to, and it's going to boil down to Dak Prescott playing really well this season, not only to, to for that money and that contract, but, as you said, to keep Jason Garrett's job. Mike D81289, do the Eagles win the Super Bowl with a close game or an absolute blowout? Now, that seems like a minority view to me. I don't get the impression that the mainstream NFL fan looks at the Eagles as a team that's destined to go back-to-back. But when I look at the roster, I look at the coaching staff, I look at the vibe, I look at everything, you you said it yourself, they're likely to win the division. I don't know that that, uh, they're not likely to end up going back to the Super Bowl and pulling off something that hasn't happened since 03-04. Yeah, history, as you said, as you pointed out, history says they're not going to do it. They're not going to get there. And I think that's the one reason I pause and I haven't really picked. We haven't picked yet for PFT, but I think I'll pause in picking them to win the Super Bowl again just because it's hard to win a Super Bowl. It is much, much harder to win a second Super Bowl in a row. We know that. History says that. And so that's kind of why I pause to pick them again. But you're right. When you start looking on paper, who who has a better team than them? I don't see it. Coaching staff, team, everything else, the depth. People forget how many players they lost last year. We, we look at, hey, they lost Carson Wentz and still were able to get it done. But what about losing Jordan Hicks? What about losing Jason Peters? What about losing Darren Sproles? They lost so many players off that football team and still were able to get it done because their depth was so good. And I think that's really what's been overlooked about this football team. They did have the injuries last year. Are they going to have injuries two years in a row? It usually doesn't work like that. So this team could stay healthy all season. And if they do, I think they probably could repeat, uh, have a really good chance to repeat as Super Bowl champions because, again, on paper, they're the best team in the National Football League. And I don't think you can argue that. I, it, it, it's obvious. They got two quarterbacks. They got a really good offensive line. They got a good defense. They got everything you want in a football team. Maybe you question their running game a little bit. You know, you say, well, they don't really have a, a top 10 or maybe even a top 15 running back, but they're still able to get it done everywhere else. They're, it's just a really good football team. Uh, perhaps one of the best football teams we've seen over the last few years. One of the things I always say when a team wins a Super Bowl, they should target multiple veterans who have been playing for yeah. a while who want a Super Bowl win. And that helps you avoid the complacency of going back to zero and zero. And what are you trying to do? You're trying to do what you already did. We already climbed to the top of the mountain. We're trying to climb this damn mountain again, and everybody's coming after us. So you get that vibe in your locker room for somebody who hasn't done it before. Well, the Eagles didn't need to do that, even though they added Michael Bennett, and he does have a ring from his time in Seattle. You've got Carson Wentz. You've got Jason Peters. You've got everybody you mentioned who hasn't earned a Super Bowl ring. They have one that they get to look at all the time and say, I didn't earn this thing. And I think that's a dynamic that that we haven't seen in a defending Super Bowl champion that is going to be a factor for this team because Carson Wentz is going to have a chip on his shoulder to go out there and prove that he's worthy of that ring that someone else won. It's a great point. The motivation is there for this football team, and Carson Wentz is not going to let them look down the road 
Jordan Hicks is not going to let them look down the road. And Jason Peters, they're going to be focused on the next game, and, and they are going to be hungry and they are going to be motivated uh, because of those guys and wanting to win for those guys. And so uh, you're right, they didn't need to go out and get those guys. And, and that's one thing back to the Cowboys I said they should have done this year is get a couple of those guys who haven't won Super Bowls like the Eagles have done uh, to try to get them over the hump. You need that leadership on a football team. You need that hunger. You need that motivation. Cowboys have one player, one position player over the age of 30, and that's Sean Lee. So they're a team really, to me, that lacks leadership. And we talked a lot about the Cowboys' leadership. There is no question on that Eagles football team who the leaders are, and they have them, and they're going to be motivated and hungry uh, to go out and get another one. You know, you only spoke for three minutes the other night, so we're making up for it now as this <laughs> continues. <laughs> Closing in on an hour, but i got a few more questions I want to get to as it relates to the NFC East. The Giants, Big John 1906. Why are some high on the Giants? No pass rush outside of Olivier Vernon. Their first eight games, it's hard to find two wins. Why is it that so many people seem to be assuming that a team that was 3-13 and last year can all of a sudden, with a guy who failed as head coach of the Browns coming in to take over for Ben McAdoo, and Pat Shermer now the head coach, why are people assuming that this team has a chance to contend for a playoff spot? Well, and I'm with them. I'm not one of those people because I, I see the same problems. When I look at their football team, they may have the best weapons in the NFL, no question about it. But that defense I have serious questions about, especially the pass rush. And I also have questions about Eli Manning, how much he has left in the tank. The last few years, he has not been a very good quarterback, and I think he's been a big part of the reason that this football team has not made the playoffs many times over the last few years. And so those are my two questions about this team. I think you need to have a pretty good defense. I think you need to have a really good quarterback, and I don't see that on this Giants football team. I think they could be fourth in the division again. I think Washington might actually be the better team uh, than, than the Giants are. Uh, this season, and I definitely think right now, if I was going to line them up, I'd put the Eagles one and the Cowboys two, uh, and I'd probably put Washington three and the wow. Giants four. So I, I don't, I don't see it either. I think it's a pretty good division, but I don't see the Giants in there either, competing for a playoff spot. Well, that leads to the next question from at Just Poof over under on wins for Washington this year. They've got Alex Smith at quarterback. There is kind of a weird vibe. Darius Geist, the guy that fell to them at number 59 in the draft, a running back who could come in and be a difference maker right away. Where would you peg that over-under for Washington win totals? I'm going to put it at seven, uh, and I do think they could be over on that. But I, I think that, you know, I think they're right around that parity that we talk about. And the one thing that really hasn't been talked about with Washington, the difference to me that Alex Smith is going to make, we know his record in the playoffs is two and five. He has not been good in the postseason. But what he does really, really well in the regular season is he does not turn the football over. They are not going to have a lot of uh, turnovers, which means they're going to be in football games. Um, and I like some of the parts of their team. So, you know, I think that's going to keep them in games, and they're probably going to win some games that they shouldn't win. Uh, they may lose some games that, that you think they're going to win, but I do think they're going to be in every football game that they play because they're not going to have the turnovers that they had in the past that Kirk Cousins had because he's going to be very safe with the football. He's going to make the right decisions on the football field and, and give them a chance um, not only to win football games but to get into the playoffs. And I do think this team has a chance. Now, the NFC stack, uh, so it's going to be difficult. You know, last year the Cowboys won nine and didn't make the postseason, which usually nine wins get you in. So I think it's going to take ten wins to get in the playoffs in the NFC. And it's going to be a fascinating apples-to-apples -apples comparison with Kirk Cousins in Minnesota with a team around him much better than what he had last year. How much of 
the failures in Washington were him, how much of it will translate to his new team, and can Alex Smith at that one position, the most important position in football, but can he come in and stabilize it with the reduced turnovers, with the leadership that a guy who's been around the NFL can bring? And those two teams, even though they're not in the same division, Washington and Minnesota, it'll be interesting to see what Cousins can do in a new environment, in a dome. You bring Alex Smith into that stadium. Can he be better there than Cousins was? And will Cousins be as good as Case Keenum was for the Vikings? And, uh, you know, you got a lot of money riding on this from Minnesota's perspective to prove that they made the right decision. But it could be that Alex Smith ends up being better than Kirk Cousins this year. Yeah, I, and I don't think there's any question about that. And, and you're right, the Vikings are a better football team. That defense is unbelievable, and, and it's really good. And um, if Kirk Cousins doesn't turn the football over, which has been a problem at times, but if he doesn't turn the football over, again, they're going to be another team that's going to be in it all the time. But I don't have a whole lot of faith in Kirk Cousins to be able to protect the football. It's just not something that he's been able to do. And he hasn't gotten his team in, in the playoffs. And, you know, the Vikings are going to be questioned about this a lot because they had a guy who took them to the NFC Championship game uh, and, and they let him walk away and they could have had him for a lot less money. Um, and, and they've gambled here that, that this guy's going to take them to the next level, Kirk Cousins. Uh, and I think it's a huge question mark and a huge gamble uh, for this GM and this coach uh, to get Kirk Cousins in there because this is a good football team. And if he doesn't get them to the playoffs and get them back where they were last year, I think there's going to be a number of questions uh, to these people about what they've done uh, with this football team. And and it is going to be a comparison all season. We're going to be looking at Alex Smith. We're going to be looking at Kirk Cousins. We're going to be looking at Washington. We're going to be looking at Minnesota. We're going to compare everything that those two quarterbacks and those two teams do all year. Yeah, people assume the Vikings just get back to the Final Four, and the question is can they take the next step? And to take it back to the Cowboys, it can be a long time between Final Four appearances, a very long time, more than a generation between Final Four appearances, and you just don't assume, especially at that position, the quarterback position, that you're going to change out the starter and you're going to pick up where you left off and get back to where you were. Go, going back to 0-0 zero and zero every year is difficult, and the better your season is, the prior season, I think the harder it is to go 0-0, zero and zero, especially when you're one of those teams that's in the middle of the radar screen because you're going to get the absolute best that every team has every week. There is no soft spot on the schedule because everybody wants to beat you because they're sick of hearing about Kirk Cousins and all the money and all the guys they've been signing and all the expectations and Minneapolis Miracle and all that stuff. It's going to be very hard for the Vikings. This wasn't supposed to be about NFC North teams, but we kind of morphed into that direction because <laughs> that's been one, one of my big questions, and I think it, the Vikings are, are expected to do too much and the Cowboys are the best example of that. Those expectations have been lingering on the Cowboys for 23 years now, and they haven't been able to live up to them. Yeah, and, and I, I think you're right. And those expectations are going to be on their shoulders all year. And Look, I love Mike Zimmer, and I think he's one of the best coaches in the NFL, and I thought he's one of the best coaches in the NFL before he even got that job. I think an awful lot of him, uh, and I think their coaching is going to be very good. But, you know, they, they've changed things on offense. They've changed quarterbacks. Um, so the expectations are going to weigh heavily on this football team from the start. Uh, and to duplicate what they did, I think it's going to be very difficult. Uh, I know they want to take that next step, but even getting back to where they were, uh, I think it's going to be awfully hard. And Rich Bisaccia, the, the very good special teams coach who was here in Dallas and, and now is with Gruden uh, in, in Oakland, you know, told me the year after the Cowboys, I talked to him a couple times after the Cowboys lost that game to Green Bay after they had home field advantage and he made the point just like you did 
of starting no and all. He said, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you did the year before. And when you were good, it probably even makes it a little bit harder uh, because you know what you were and you're trying to get back to that point. And you do start 0-0 and you have to forget about that. And, it, and it's really difficult when you think you have a team to win a Super Bowl and you didn't get it done. And then you have to go back and start all over again. It's a really hard process and it's a really hard thing to do. And I think the Vikings are going to figure that out this year. Shereen, excellent, excellent work as always. We've gone for a full hour, and I appreciate all of your time. And it was a great time Friday night. It was great to meet your husband and the rest of your family. We're all very proud of you winning the 2018 Dick McCann Award. And it, it is great to know that uh, that plaque is going to be on the wall, right, for a very long time. And it's right out there outside the room where the busts are. So we're very proud of you for the achievement. And we're glad we could just be one small slice of your journey. It's only been a year. Hopefully it's going to be a lot longer than that. But uh, we're, we're very proud to have been a piece of your career. And we're very proud of what you've accomplished. Well, thank you, Mike. Thanks for everything uh, and for bringing me for P to PFD. I've enjoyed it. Well, I've enjoyed it very much, too. And it was at a time, I told this story the other night. I, th I was telling your cousin, I think, that, you know, when we were in the process of looking for someone, we needed to hire someone. I wasn't thrilled with my options. I won't name names. And uh, I and I, I can't even remember the names, frankly, at this point. I know that when I saw that, that you were laid off by the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, my first thought was, oh, my God, that's awful. And my next thought was, oh, my God, this is great. Because <laughs> I, my, my problem, my lingering problem that had driven me crazy had instantly been solved. And I knew at that moment that we were going to bring you on board. And I'm glad it worked out. And I'm, and I'm glad you've stayed with us. And hopefully we can continue for a very long time. Well, I appreciate that. It's amazing to look back and see where you've come in the last year. But uh appreciate you and, and what you guys do and uh, for bringing me on board. All right. Thanks, Shereen. And that's it, everybody. Thanks for some of your time today. Later this week, Terry McCauley, the former NFL referee and now NBC rules analyst, and then Chris Ballard, the Colts GM, on Wednesday, plus plenty more as we continue forward with the PFTPM podcast. Thanks for your time. We'll talk to you again on Tuesday. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.